Concepts in Focus, a philosophy series by the Acid Horizon Theory Podcast. Please like or subscribe wherever you're listening so you can get this content regularly in your feed. Okay, let's get started. Deleuze and the Image of Thought The term the image of thought is one that often gets thrown around by folks who work on the philosophy of Deleuze and Guattari. Folks coming to the work of D&G for the first time may initially be put off by the large amount of conceptual terminology and stylistic nuance familiar to their writing. Today, my goal is to offer a brief overview of the image of thought and mention a few places where this concept is developed. I think becoming more acquainted with this particular concept in the work of Deleuze and Guattari helps us get a better sense of what kind of enterprise they believe philosophy to be. For me personally, this concept validates approaches to philosophy often derided as non-philosophical, especially when certain familiar caricatures are deployed against those kinds of philosophy. There is a brand of partisan in the world of philosophy which insists on needlessly bifurcating the discipline into two camps. The first camp is considered to be the serious and intellectually rigorous camp, and the other is deemed to be the literary, poetic, or straighter to the point, nonsense camp. The error lies not in choosing the wrong side, but buying into this distinction itself, which is, ironically, almost never rigorously or coherently defined. Now, my short presentation here will in no way be exhaustive of all the details related to the concept and focus. So, if you're listening somewhere with a comment section, I invite you to ask questions or contribute a constructive criticism. Now, when it comes to understanding what is meant by the image of thought, there is one key word to carry us through. Presuppositions. Deleuze begins chapter 3 of Difference and Repetition, exclaiming that the enterprise of philosophy has rightly involved eliminating presuppositions at the starting point of thinking. A presupposition can be defined as something assumed prior to undertaking a philosophical inquiry. It is often the case that these assumptions are made tacitly or unconsciously. Deleuze uses the philosopher René Descartes as an example of a thinker who both successfully avoided and unfortunately succumbed to presuppositions in his own system of thought. In formulating his famous concept of the cogito, as in the phrase cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, Descartes avoided a potential error by not claiming that human beings were rational animals, because, as Deleuze notes, the concept explicitly presupposes the definition of these terms. While Descartes did not stumble by smuggling in objective presuppositions, he could not, however, escape certain subjective presuppositions in his philosophy. So, how can we delineate between the two kinds of presuppositions, objective and subjective? Perhaps we can understand why a philosopher might stop short of asserting that a human being is a rational animal without them first undertaking to define those terms. One only needs to survey the history of philosophy to get a sense that the word rational, for instance, is not a term that means the same thing to all thinkers. So, to use such a term as a starting point engenders the risk of unexamined ideas sifting into our initial premises. 
This is more or less what is meant by objective presuppositions. Now, subjective presuppositions are like objective presuppositions in some respect, but what is unique about them is that they either implicitly or explicitly bear the character of, oh, that's obvious, that's something that everyone knows. The implication being that there exists something about the idea which doesn't merit the scrutiny we'd normally apply to ideas. There's a whole genre of ideas based on subjective presuppositions which we, as dedicated philosophers, should remain committed to destabilizing. I'm thinking of ideas grounded in common sense. The notion that the widespread or familiar character of an idea automatically secures for it some sort of merit. The call to valorize common sense as a first principle almost always brings inquiry to a screeching halt. To be sure, this is not an attack on the indispensability or pragmatics of certain commonly held beliefs or values per se. What is problematic is the assertion that a common sense, or something that everyone knows, constitutes the best or unchallengeable entry point into philosophical inquiry. For Deleuze, Descartes' famous axiom, I think, therefore I am, suffers from such subjective presuppositions. Deleuze observes that Descartes' claim presupposes the universality of things like thinking, being, and self. Descartes not only presupposes these things as self-evident, but he also fully circumscribes them as natural. This, as I mentioned, poses a problem for Deleuze, but there is a unique feature to Deleuze's attack on Cartesian logic. In the formulation of thought, being, and self— as presupposed universal concepts, actual thinking merely instantiates categories prefigured under the Cartesian rubric. Under this rubric, individual instances of thought become reduced to more or less derogatory representations of an overarching universal notion of thought. In short, once accepted as true, there is no thinking which escapes the Cartesian loop of presuppositions. In Difference and Repetition, Deleuze humorously suggests we can extricate ourselves from the loop by simply refusing to be represented as one of the everybody. Just disallow others to speak on your behalf and say you're not part of the big everybody. Do this and all that has been initially presupposed once again returns to the crucible of philosophical scrutiny. So, the image of thought, or the classical image of thought whose provenance is by and large ancient Greek philosophy, involves a set of pre-philosophical notions which precede inquiry. The classical image of thought dictates that thought bears a natural affinity for what is true and what is good. It follows that the task of thinking should involve prohibitions that prevent us from straying from truth and goodness. This, of course, means taming or subverting forces which are said to come from the outside of thought, namely the vagaries of those always troublesome bodily passions. What's more, our redemption through philosophy comes when thought realigns with the true and the good. How does that happen? Well, it's only when thought is subordinated to a method that philosophy truly becomes possible— by prescribing a method, philosophy is then wrought as it should be, a voluntary activity undertaken in accordance with the natural affinities, 
a regimen of inquiry guided by the right kinds of questions, as well as a program of moral virtues to rein in our base desires. We need to look no further than the figure of Socrates in the writing of Plato as the paradigmatic defender of the classical image of thought. Plato's Socrates is an ardent lover of the truth, and he sees its attainment as the ultimate aim of life. However, what is most true and most good in the Platonic sense is not anything that actually exists on planet Earth. As mortal beings, we can only approximate the true and the good, both of which find their highest expression in Plato's theory of forms. To gain this rarefied knowledge, the philosopher needs to parse good questions from bad ones. For Plato, the best question is generally asked in the form of, what is? As in questions like, what is justice? Or, what is beauty? The true philosopher disposes of certain other kinds of questions, those which either invoke matters of opinion or those which are said to have no philosophical importance. Plato believes that other kinds of questions without the what is, such as when or where does justice happen, or who is beautiful, induce tendentious responses, not what is essential to the concepts in question. Now, Plato's dialogues are interesting here because, as I pointed out in Acid Horizon's episode on Plato's Phaedrus, it is as if the dialogues compose an agon of contenders. All of these rivals are vying for the position of the dominant image of thought. Plato, through the figure of Socrates, often spends his time in the dialogues, such as in Phaedrus, Gorgias, Sophist, and elsewhere, fending off his number one rival, the rhetorician, and a few others besides. Plato also shows great disdain for poets and playwrights, artists whose work he believes are of a duplicitous nature. Ironically, amidst his truth-seeking, Socrates often resets the dialectic through speaking incantations or recounting myth. These forms of discourse, for most readers, might seem specious and at odds with the priorities of the reason-driven dialectic. While these moves should motivate some skepticism about the epistemic foundations of Platonism, it also highlights how the contiguity of discourses in the dialogues may have implications for how modes of discourse, in general, gain discursive power. At the top of this episode, I mentioned that Deleuze held that to eliminate presuppositions was rightly one of the tasks of philosophy. Eliminating presuppositions undercuts the image of thought. So, to think outside the image of thought might then involve a very different way of doing philosophy. One of the key tenets of the classical image of thought I mentioned was that philosophy was an activity undertaken voluntarily. Now, how would philosophy even be done if this were not the case? Well, for Deleuze, the activity of thought is brought about involuntarily. It occurs in virtue of an outside, a contingency of external forces which cause a rupture or an incitement to think. This means being awakened from a stupor or unconsciousness, which in turn instigates a search for truth. Deleuze's work in Proust and Signs explores the notion of the search and both its philosophical and non-philosophical dimensions. Deleuze puts forward the idea that philosophy occurs 
as an apprenticeship of signs, one very different from the notion of philosophy as method that we encountered through Plato. Moreover, Deleuze ascribes importance to non-philosophical endeavors as a necessary aspect of a philosophical journey. What are often construed as digressions from a philosophical life in the form of confusion, listlessness, romance, and other things become, in fact, preeminent venues of the philosophical apprenticeship. The apprenticeship, as Deleuze describes it, does not involve delimiting the field of philosophical inquiry, as it does in Plato, but instead proceeds in a way aptly described by Dan Smith. Smith observes how Proust constructs, quote, a literary apparatus that brings together heterogeneous elements and makes them function together. The work thus constitutes a whole, but this whole is itself a part that merely exists alongside the other parts, which it neither unifies nor totalizes. End quote. Put another way, for Deleuze, the search for truth involves the recovery of disparate moments of lost time in a literary manner, a lifetime of wasted moments, romances which have come to pass, and time detracted from artistic or aspirational projects converge in the revelation that these were elements of a philosophical project, but one irreducible to a totalizing unity as such. Jay Conway, in his book Gilles Deleuze, Affirmation in Philosophy, writes that for Deleuze, quote, the work of philosophy arises out of experience whose philosophical import is not immediately recognizable, end quote. In short, becoming philosophical involves a recovery of time, which occurs through the activity of creating sense. The creation of sense involves formulating a linkage of disparate experiences. Their connection happens not in identifying their presupposed unity, but rather in specifying differential processes which trace a non-organic and transversal line through them. Thus, for Deleuze, the ethical task of the philosophical life involves an affirmation of difference, the heterogeneous and multiple character of our existence. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Concepts in Focus. Feel free to continue the discussion in the comments or ask questions directly to me. Uh, unfortunately, in the interest of keeping this episode short, I had to give Proust and Science a very short shrift at the end. But keep an eye out for a Patreon-exclusive episode in the next day or so in which Will and I pick up the discussion on Deleuze's early work with both Taylor Adkins and Cooper of Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. Feel free to support us on Patreon to get exclusive content. Or check out our merch store at critdrip.com. That's C-R-I-T-D-R-I-P.com. Also, follow us on Twitter or Instagram to get regular updates from our squad. We will see you next time.